continuing to go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we saw that the, the Corinthian church was getting a pretty significant portion of the gospel wrong. They were kind of missing out on something that was a big deal. And we talked about it because what they were missing out on was one of the core tenets, one of the core principles in Christianity, and that was resurrection from the dead. We believe that Jesus Christ lived he died taking the punishment for our, our sin, taking the punishment for our, 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 all of that. He died for us, for our sin. And then he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day. So he was resurrected. And if there is no resurrection, we have a problem. Because through his death, we have forgiveness of sins. But through his resurrection, his new life, we have a brand new life. And the problem is, is if we, if we don't take that into account, and like I said last week, it's what I think is the most important thing about, the, about what Jesus accomplished. Now, we need forgiveness. That's true. It's important. We need forgiveness. But if that's all that we had, we would just be treating the symptom, and we would never deal with the root cause. And that's what Jesus, rising from the dead, did. He gave us a brand new life. We, we died with him and we rose again with him by faith. We have a brand new life. No longer are we who we used to be, but we're made brand new. And the great part about that is instead of just, you know, throwing a, a, turning the radio up when your car's making noise, we're actually fixing the problem. We're actually making a difference. So we're not who we used to be. We've been made brand new. And that's such a, an important part of Christianity. Because there's plenty of other religions out there that are, that are about you doing the right thing and living a moral life and doing all those things. But that's the key difference between Christianity and, and the other religions is they're, they're about you making yourself right with God by doing all the right things, by doing all these, these different rules. And if you follow everything perfectly, then you're going to be fine. But the problem is, is that following everything perfectly doesn't make you brand new inside. And the truth is, if you're not made brand new inside, that, that old person that you, who you are, you're, you're in bondage to sin and death. Paul said in the book of Romans, before he got saved, he's like, I agreed with what was good. I agreed with the law of God. I wanted to do what was good, but I couldn't because sin had a hold on me. And sin will always have a hold on you unless you get a brand new life, which was guaranteed to us in, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul gave them that refresher course. He said, listen, we need to have a refresher course of what I taught you last time I was down there. And he said, one, we need to be clear that Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and then he rose again. There was a resurrection. But apparently there were people in the Corinthian church teaching, no, that there, there was no resurrection. And it was causing a problem. It was causing a stir. So today... Paul is going to go on, and, and last week he gave us the refresher course. He said, this is what Christianity is about. And now he's going to start making that argument that, no, in fact, Christ has been raised. And this is a done deal. This is a fact. And he begins to make a compelling case, and, and he actually starts the argument with, it's a fact that Christ has been raised. So let's go ahead and get started in the Word this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Last week, Paul made the statement that if Christ had not been risen from the dead, then we are of most to be pitied. If there was no resurrection from the dead and Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then our hope and Jesus is only for this world, and there's no eternal hope. There's nothing that we're, we're still 
who we were. We're still broken. Nothing has been fixed. We're not right with God without that new life inside of us. And he said, if, if Jesus hadn't raised, been risen from the dead, we're the most to be pitied because we're just believing in a fairy tale. We're placing all of our hope, we're hedging all of our bets on a fairy tale, is what Paul was saying. And we're the most to be pitied because we've been duped. But the good news is that's not the case. Paul, next line says, but in fact, you know, Pastor Mike, my pastor, used to always say that you have to have your butts in the right places. He says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, you know what, guys? I'm going to make this argument that he was risen from the dead, but it's really a worthless argument. What you guys are saying, and no matter what you say that he wasn't rose from the dead, the, whatever case you make, it doesn't matter because you're, you're arguing against the truth. He says, he has been raised from the dead. And we have to remember that when Paul was talking last week that if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, that wasn't him entertaining the idea. It was not Paul implying that it could be true. It was not a wait and see thing. That was a hypothetical if. That was, a, that was one of those ifs that demanded the answer that like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? He says, but Christ has been raised from the dead and he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You'll notice that that word is plural. It doesn't say that he is the fruit. He says he's the first fruits. That means that he is the first of many. So that means that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that is something that, that all of us will do as well. If we die before Jesus comes back, we will be resurrected from the dead. Our earthly bodies will be made brand new and we will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. And this isn't the only time that Paul has spoken similarly in this situation, talking about Jesus being the first fruit. In Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This idea that Jesus was the first of many is a common teaching in the Scripture. And in this case, we are conformed in his image. That means that, that we become like him. See, that's the great thing about the resurrection is, is Jesus died for us, but then he rose again for us in newness of life, and we get that new life. It's his, the old spirit of ours, that old dead man of ours is pulled out. It's been replaced with the spirit of Jesus Christ. We're made brand new, and we have that new life inside of us. And when the time comes, we will be resurrected. If you die before Jesus comes back, there'll be a day when Jesus shows up and the trumpets sound and and you're getting pulled out of the grave. You're showing up. It's going to be like the walking dead, but in a good way. And this is a glorious thing. We're getting a brand new body. I don't know about you, but I'm only 37, and I, could already, I feel like I could use a brand new body already. Man, I've been, this new job's killing me. I'm putting on all kinds of weight. The good news is I've lost 20 pounds in the last three weeks, so slowly but surely coming off. But... Uh, yeah, I can't, I, you know, I wonder if in heaven, you know, weight gain is not going to be an issue because I'm going to have a brand new body. It's going to function like it's supposed to. Or maybe my brain will work better. I just won't want to eat all the time. But we'll be given a brand new body, resurrected. And it won't be like the one that we have now that's, that's susceptible to sickness, that's susceptible to disease. 
that's susceptible to decay. Essentially, the moment you begin, you're born, you begin dying. Usually takes most people around 80 years. But that's, that's what happens. You're born and you begin dying. But we're going to have a body that's perfect in every way, which is hard for me to imagine because I look good. I mean, how much, how much more perfect is it going to look? I mean, I'm excited, y'all. See, what's going to happen is you're going to pull out your phone. You ever, you ever go to take a picture of something, but you had the selfie camera on and you got that there? Look in your camera when you see yourself. That won't happen anymore. It's going to be a good body. Hallelujah. You guys are getting me distracted. Verse 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is another one of those super important things of Christianity. You should be taking notes on this because this is important what we're going to talk about right now. It says, for one man came death. That man is Adam. That one man, see, a lot of us, a lot of us think that uh, it was when woman ate from the, 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 the fruit from the tree that that's when everything went downhill. You know, I, I heard a joke just the other day that says that, uh, and my, my wife's totally like this. I try to ask her where she wants to eat. She can't ever make up her mind, ever. I'm like, where do you want? And th- no, the worst part is, I'm like, where do you want to go? She's like, anywhere. I'm like, how about here? Nope. How about here? Nope. I don't have to say the names. It doesn't matter. I know, right? So somebody told me that the reason why women have such a hard time deciding where to eat is because the last time they did, the last time they decided, they doomed the, the human race. So they're still reeling over that. See, all you guys that are laughing, though, you guys all think that it was the woman's fault, but the truth is that's not when the fall happened. What happened was it was, it was when Adam ate from the fruit. That's when the fall of man happened. That's when it all went downhill. That's because Adam wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Instead of leading his family, he was being led. Instead of stepping up into the role that he was intended to fulfill, he, he should have said, what are you doing? God said not to do this, but instead he just went right in with it. And as a result, death was introduced to the world. Sin was introduced to the world because of his actions, not because of Eve's actions, but because of his actions. We're on the path that we're on right now. All of us are born broken. All of us are born dying. All of us are born missing something because of what Adam had done. And that's what being born again is actually about. When you receive that new life inside of you, the, the, the spirit that you're born with that's broken, that, that, that has the fault that's replaced with the spirit of God, and you are made brand new. And some of you are wondering, wait a minute, why are we all held responsible for some other guy's mistake? Anybody ever felt that way? I felt that way before. I'm like, why is it that I'm being held responsible for Adam's stupid mistake? I don't get it. Why can't I be responsible for my own actions? But we all say that while we turn a blind eye to the way we've actually been living our lives. We all say, I want to be responsible for my own actions. And then if you just take a step back to probably two hours ago, you already did something stupid. And, and that's already put you in a place that you can't be right with God. It doesn't take much. 
We forget that we haven't lived perfect lives. We haven't lived perfectly without sin. It's impossible to do so. So why are we held responsible? It's actually the brilliance of God's plan. Because because we are responsible for that one man's sin that that has trickled down through generations, we can be redeemed by one man's perfect sacrifice. It says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall live. You know, so the next time they were all complaining about this, let's be thankful because there's no way that we could have done it perfectly. Because the truth is, we've all sinned. And what's, uh, what does Roman, the book of Romans say? The wages of sin is death. So if you have sinned, that price is owed. And God is a just God. He's not evil. He's not trying to punish you. But He's a righteous and just God. And if He doesn't hold you accountable, if He doesn't hold you to that standard, then He stops being God. Because God is just. God is righteous. And the moment He stops being any one of those things, He's no longer God. So you are to be held accountable. And if we were paying for our own, it's already too late for all of us in this room. But the reality is, is that he made another way. And what I love about Jesus is that, and for you guys that have been here for a while, you know, you know I, I like this, but he didn't, God didn't compromise. He didn't stop being righteous. He didn't stop being just. The payment was still due. And he sent himself, he sent himself in Jesus and gave his life for us. He said, you know what? This price has to be paid. I'm going to pay it for you. And because of one man's actions, one man's sin, we are all held condemned. We're all redeemed by one man's perfect sacrifice on the cross. Amen? How many think that's good news? That's good news. And then verse 23 says, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. But there is going to be a sequence to these events. So Paul's saying, yes, there is a resurrection. But resurrection doesn't happen right away. When, when you say yes to Jesus in your heart, you're not immediately resurrected and taken up to heaven. One time I was at a... Uh, a youth conference and the preacher was up there and and he just spoke powerfully and just about the entire place hundreds of kids came forward and gave their their life to jesus and it was an exciting time i mean i mean people were coming up there there were, there were kids that i know were saved before going back up there just to make sure that i mean this the speaker was awesome he was up there and then someone said i wish jesus would just come back right now so all these kids would make it and i remember in my heart thinking but what about all those who haven't heard yet? Why, why don't we give them time so that they can be in this same place? But that's what some people want is you say yes, and bang, you're, you're lifted up to heaven. Now, I'll be honest with you. I wish in life that when you decided on something, that that's how it was. I mean, how many of you are like, Monday I'm working out, and you just wish you woke up just ripped? Or like, I decided I'm going I'm to eat less 
and go on this diet. So since I've decided, why isn't my body already conforming to what I've decided? And that's true in Christianity too. Sometimes when people give their lives to Jesus, they have a radical change in their whole life change. Or sometimes they're like me and it takes 20 years to figure it out. But it doesn't just happen like that. Paul says there's an order. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Christ was the one that rose from the dead first. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. At his return, those who have fallen asleep in him, those who are saved when Jesus Christ comes back, those who have died who were saved are going to be risen from the dead. Some people that didn't believe are going to have their eyes opened at that point in time. But the weird part is, and the, the terrible part is, the, the, the Bible says that even though, even after they've seen that, after they've seen people disappear and people being risen from the dead, they're still going to have their hearts hardened and not believe. But Jesus told us that he would be returning. In John 14, 2 through 3, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He prepared that place for us by going to the cross and rising from the dead and sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, it is finished. If you guys are concerned if Jesus was enough, he got done, he sat down and said, it is finished. It was enough. In him is enough. And his return is also told in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This isn't a new thing. This is talked about in many other places. In scriptures, there will be a resurrection from the dead, but it comes in order. And we're the, the rest of those fruits. That's us. We're the rest. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. When the time comes, when Jesus returns, we are going to be resurrected in our new bodies. The fact that we're all here in this room right now is proof that it doesn't happen immediately. But when the time comes, we are going to heaven resurrected in our resurrected body. We will be with Jesus. And then after that, There'll be a period of time when Jesus comes back. And then after that period of time, every enemy, every power, every rule, every authority will be destroyed. And Jesus will give his kingdom back to God. And verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is kind of like Jesus' arch enemy. You know, he's, he's like Batman's Joker. Death is, is, is the, the final enemy that Jesus will defeat. And the, the thing about death is it's the, the common fate of everything in this world. Not just humans. Obviously, we all faith, face death. We all know that. But animals faith, faith, face death. Plants. Every living thing faces death. But it's not even living things. Even the, the earth 
is groaning right now. We, we look at, you know, many people are making all these, these predictions that God is punishing the world right now with all these natural disasters. I mean, I was talking to someone last, uh, last night, and we've gotten to the point that, how many of you guys have heard much about the, the hurricane in Puerto Rico? A lot or a little? Particularly in comparison to everything else that's happened. I've, you've heard a lot? I've heard almost nothing about it in the news. I've seen very little of it. So Harvey came and hit Texas, and boy, that was all over the news everywhere. Nobody would stop talking about it. Matter of fact, it was so big that the fires that were in Montana and Wyoming almost got no coverage. And then we had another massive hurricane in Florida, and that one got much less coverage. And then we had a crazy earthquake in Mexico. And the only reason I know a lot about that is because that's actually where my company works out of. And, and praise God, the, the street that they were on, none of the buildings fell. But I think other than that and a couple of short Facebook, pace, Facebook posts, I've seen nothing about that earthquake. And then the stuff in Puerto Rico, I've, I've seen almost hardly any news on. We've almost gotten to the point where we're like, like man, Another hurricane came. Must be Tuesday. We've, we've become desensitized to it because it's coming so fast. It's coming so hard. And I don't believe that it's God punishing us because sin was already punished in Jesus Christ. Sin was taken care of in Jesus. But I do believe that we can take account of the signs of the times. Now, I don't know if the end is coming in 100 years or 10,000 years. The way I see it is when Jesus calls me home, I'm going to go home. If he shows up tomorrow, let's go. If he doesn't, I'll write it out and keep doing what he's called me to do. But the scripture does says that in the end times, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and there'll be a bunch of natural disasters going on. This stuff is a, is a sign of things to come. We are entering in to the end times. And like I said, I don't know when it's going to be, how long it's going to take. The only thing I know for sure is if somebody says it's going to happen on this time, it won't happen then. Because the Bible says that he comes like a thief in the night. So if somebody says this is the end, that's the one thing you can rest assured that that day is not the end. People were freaking out about September 23rd, about that was going to be the end of the world. Planet X that nobody's ever seen is going to hit the earth or something. And uh, that was my wife's birthday. So it was, it was your fault. <laughs> But, yeah, as, as you can tell, we're all still here. It wasn't the end of the world. If anybody says it's the end, it's not the end. Matter of fact, it was a beginning. Amen? It wasn't a bad day. It was a good day. Hallelujah. But he goes on to say that until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Now, even now, we have the authority over the devil in our lives. We have been given all authority in Jesus Christ. It's not our own, but it's his. Just like when a police officer pulls you over, it's not that particular person's authority, but it's the authority of the state for whom he works. The same thing, or the, the city that he works. Same for us in Jesus. We operate in his authority. When we stand before the devil or anything that's coming against us, and we say, in the name of Jesus, that's why we pray that way, in the name of Jesus, because that's whose authority we're standing in. And we have authority over the devil. The scripture says that if you stand against the, the, the enemy, that he must flee. And we says we can, we can lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We have authority even right now over all those things. But death is one that we can't 
get a hold of permanently. Now, there's been many cases in the Bible and since then of people uh, being prayed for and have, they've risen from the dead. They were dead and now they're not. We even had uh, 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 Dean Braxton visit us not too long ago and hopefully we'll have him visiting us again early next year, but he was dead for an hour and 45 minutes. There's doctor's evidence that he was dead and then he came back to life after being dead an hour and 45 minutes. He's got an amazing story of how he visited heaven, and hopefully he's going to be back um, in February. But there's plenty of, of documented cases of people dying, being prayed for, and, and they've, they've rose from the dead. But how many know that's not a permanent thing? Eventually, everyone will die. For every man, a, a time has been appointed for them to die. So even if we pray and we take authority and they're risen, they're still going to eventually die again. So that's the one thing that we don't have authority, full authority over on this earth because Jesus, that's the last enemy that Jesus will destroy. But I thank God that, that this, this death being around, it's only temporary. We've been freed from its bondage. We've been made alive in Jesus Christ. So even when we die, we still live. Amen. Even when we die, it's not the end for us. That's why the scripture says that we don't, world as the, we don't mourn as the world mourns when somebody dies. Because we, we know that if they're in Jesus, we're going to be able to see them again someday. Death is a temporary inconvenience for us. It's not the end. Amen? On this earth, death ultimately rears its head and claims our bodies. But I thank God that when he comes back, death will be defeated completely. We will be in a resurrected body and we will live forever in that body. Death's not permanent for us. It's a temporary setback. And when Jesus is finished, he's going to completely eradicate it forever. And then he goes on in verse 27. He says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's referring to Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are, in subject, are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. This is what I want you guys to do. Go home and say that ten times really fast. Paul's now clarifying a couple things. Jesus is coming back. He's putting, he's, everything will be in subjection to him. Now, but Paul's just saying, but just in case somebody gets some crazy idea, I'm not saying that Jesus is putting God in subjection to him. Even verse 24 and 25, which we just read a second ago, it says, there it is, that he comes to the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. Jesus is going to be delivering the kingdom that is fully in subjection to him, to God when the end has come. But Paul wants to, to make it clear that, no, it's obvious that the one who sent him, God sent Jesus, is still going to be the one who has all authority. And what happens, this happens because God is the, is the Father. God the Father is the head of everything. And even the Son cannot take his place. And some have tried to argue using this verse, and they say, see, 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 I told you, Jesus isn't God. He's somehow less than God. However, the Scripture is not referring to the nature 
of Jesus. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. There are so many scriptures that you can go through and look where it talks about he gave up his deity. You see that his disciples worshipped him when worship was reserved only for God. There's, uh, uh, was it, uh, oh man, I messed up his name last week. Not Thomas. Uh, somebody work with Stephen, yes. Last week I used his name wrongly. If you're listening, he's like, what the heck is he talking about Thomas? It was actually Stephen that Paul held the coat for. But when Stephen was dying, he looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of, of God and he said, Jesus, receive my spirit. The only person that can receive your spirit is God. There's over and over and over in the scripture, there's evidence that Jesus Christ is in fact God. And the Holy Spirit as well. They're all three the same God. Three different persons, one God. Co-equal, co-eternal, and, and that's the evidence all over the place in the Scriptures for that. But some people say, but no, look, this proves because Jesus is his objection to God, but it's not like I said about his nature. It has to do with his mission or his role, particularly in salvation. And we always have to be very careful about making one verse into doctrine. When you're looking at a verse and you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to coincide with you know, many other scriptures in the Bible. It's not the Bible contradicting itself. It's our understanding that needs to be corrected. And that's what this is. It's him talking about Jesus' role, not his nature. And even though that they are co-equal, co-eternal, there is different levels of authority that rest in their roles. The Father sent the Son. And Jesus will finish His work and He's going to return and hand it over to the Father. That's all that it's talking about. It's about authority in their roles or in their missions. Matter of fact, this is something that can help you if you, if you struggle with the idea that the Scripture um, refers to men leading their wives and their family. Some people have taken that out of context and saying, yeah, that's because men are more valuable or men are better or all these things. But that's not what it's saying. Matter of fact, they are co-valuable. They are both equal in God's eyes. Matter of fact, Christianity is one of the only religions that considers men and women equal. But we have different roles and responsibilities. Men and women are no less valuable than one another, but our roles and responsibility and mission in the church is different, much like God the Father and Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Amen? 1 Corinthians 15, 29, he goes on and says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? We're going to talk about this in two ways. One, we're going to break down the argument. So what Paul is saying is, basically, if you don't believe in resurrection of the dead, why are you doing this thing? Why are you baptizing on behalf of the dead? If they're not raised, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, if you don't believe this, then why are you doing this? One of the things that we will talk about shortly and as we, we go into to more about baptism right now is, is that uh, here we, we don't believe in infant baptism. I know a lot of other denominations do it. We don't because the scripture says that you must believe to be baptized and babies can't believe. But if we said we don't believe in infant baptism, but then we baptize babies, somebody could say, if you don't believe in this, then why are you doing it? 
It doesn't mean they agree with what we're doing. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. They're just using uh, something that's real about the culture they're in, what they're doing, to prove a point. And that's what he's saying. Why do you people, what do you people, if you don't believe in, in resurrection of the dead, then what's the, what's the point of this baptism on behalf of the dead thing? So now that we see the argument that's being made, the next thing we have to break down is, what the heck is this idea of baptizing on behalf of the dead? First, this is the only time that this is referenced in Scripture anywhere. It's not mentioned anywhere else. So truthfully, we don't really know a whole lot about what they were doing. Um, we just don't. There's, there's no information anywhere because this is the only time it's mentioned at all. And I would argue it wasn't a, a, a common practice in the church. This was Corinthian doing, the Corinthian church doing one thing. But as a result, because this is the only place that it's mentioned, we don't really know what Paul's referencing, but we do know that it illustrates a belief in the resurrection of the dead. And that was the whole point of the argument here, that, that we don't know what this thing is, but we do know Paul was using it to make a point. But it also doesn't mean that he's condoning or promoting this practice either. Like I said, somebody could say, you know, if you don't believe in infant baptism while you're doing it, it doesn't mean they agree with what we're doing. They're just using what we're doing to make a point. You've probably done that with your kids from time to time. But there are some that have taken this verse to mean that we can baptize other people by proxy. There are some denominations and some others that, that claim to be Christians that they'll actually do proxy baptisms for like the President of the United States. They figure that they're going to save somebody on, on their merit instead of them having to actually receive Jesus. And but basically, they've, they've taken one verse in Scripture and made an entire doctrine out of it. Remember what I said earlier? You've you got to be very careful about making doctrines out of a single Scripture. Because if you make one out of a single Scripture, you're going to find yourself slipping up in many ways. Particularly in this particular case, if we look at all the other Scriptures regarding baptism, there's nothing else mentioned. And matter of fact, this seems to be in complete contradiction. And like I said, if there's something in contradiction to other Scriptures in the Bible, it's not that the Bible... It's contradicting itself. It's our understanding has a problem. Amen? So what do we know about baptism in the Bible? One, we know that every time someone gets baptized, we basically, baptized, we basically see two things. First, they're an adult. At least they're old enough to understand what's going on. Second, they believe. That's, that's probably the reason why they're all adults, because you have to believe to be baptized. You have to be old enough to be able to make a decision to be baptized. The, the book of Acts lists this as a requirement explicitly. In Acts 8, 36-37, I'm reading from the New American Standard because for whatever reason, the ESV, what I teach from, decided to remove this verse. But it says, As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart... You may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Basically, he says, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I receive him as my Savior. And then he got baptized. And this is actually why we don't practice infant baptism here, because babies can't believe. They can pretty much poop and eat. That's it. They got to get a little bit older before they can think things through and actually make a decision. And they can keep you awake, too. And this, I, I believe this is the reason why we only see adults getting baptized in the Scripture because they had to be able to believe in that. 
So we, we can look at all the instances in Scripture that talk about baptism, and we see it contradicts this. So no, there, there is no, you can't baptize, baptize somebody by proxy because you can't believe for somebody by proxy. They have to believe and they have to get baptized. I, I honestly believe that this is probably one of those issues that Paul was going to deal with when he says, the rest I'll talk to you about when I get there. Because there's some things that we don't see in the letters that were still addressed. But to be clear, it is not scriptural or biblical to baptize by proxy. Amen? And then in verse uh, 30-32, he says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So now Paul is making the, the case for resurrection also by using his own life. And he basically says, if there were no resurrection, would I really be doing this? If there were no resurrection, would I really be risking my life daily? It would be and, and a, a much less extreme case by me saying, if I really didn't believe that Jesus died for your sins and he is what you need in your life without a shadow of a doubt, would I work full-time and also do the church full-time and basically have no time for anything else in my life? No, because I believe that with all my heart, that God has a plan for each and every one of you guys in this room and in this city's life. He has a plan, and there's something better for you. I believe that with all of my heart, which is why I do this. So Paul's saying, I mean, Paul's got it even worse. He says, why am I in danger every hour? Because of my pride in you, which I have in Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Basically saying, because of what's happened in you, because of the change I've seen in your life, because of my pride in what Jesus has accomplished in you, I would be willing to go to die every single day and do it again every single day. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fight with beasts at Ephesus? He says, what, what would I gain to put up with this nonsense, to put my life in danger? It's not likely he's talking about the beast, but really he's just talking about his life preaching the gospel. Because he was shipwrecked, he was beaten multiple times, he was stoned multiple times. One time when they stoned him, they left him for dead. They thought he was dead. And what did he do? He got back up and went in the city and continued to preach. Because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed in having a brand new life. He believed in what Jesus was doing. And he says, if there was no resurrection, then this would all be pointless. And I can assure you that I would not be going out willingly being stoned to the brink of, of people think I'm dead if this wasn't a reality, if this wasn't true. And then he continues on, and we'll finish up uh, here today. In verse 33 and 34, it says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Paul concludes his argument for the resurrection of the dead with giving advice on how to deal with people who are teaching something completely different. He says, don't be, de don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Basically, the people that you're willing to listen to are going to eventually drag you down with them. And this is very similar to the advice he gave earlier in this letter talking about immoral people in the church, those people who claim to be Christians in the church, 
but are, are living a sinful life unrepentantly. He wasn't talking about people that, that, that made mistakes. We all make mistakes. If we just get back up, that's the important thing, right? We get back up. But there were people in the church who were blatantly living in sin, and they had no repentance. They had no uh, uh, cause to change or move out of it. And he says, you know what? Those kind of people, don't, don't associate with them. And that's basically what he's saying right here. He says, this is such bad teaching. Do not let yourself get wrapped up in it. Get away from it, because their company will ruin what you have going on inside of you. Don't associate. They'll drag you down. This is also one of the reasons why we severely don't encourage missionary dating. You guys know what missionary dating is? That's when a Christian is dating a non-Christian, hoping to get them saved by dating them. It never works. What happens is, is you get pulled out of your relationship with God instead of you pulling them in. And really, this goes for anything, you know, particularly in the church when people are claiming to be Christians but doing all kinds of nonsense. We need to, to, to take a stand against that. And I want to be clear that I'm not talking about making a mistake. I'm talking about intentionally living in sin because you've made a conscious decision to do so. There's a problem with that if you've been saved. It has to be dealt with. I'm not talking about people that are repentant and have turned back towards God and are just struggling. That's a difference. Because the problem is when we hang around with people like that, or even after you've been saved, being careful who we spend our time with because it can, we can be dragged down with them, pulled back into places where we never wanted to be. And he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up and see the truth. Don't be deceived. And do not go on sinning. Paul was actually equating this denial of the resurrection to sinning. Because it was essentially eliminating the opportunity to be saved. It was, it was rejecting the gospel. And you guys have all heard of the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. And that the only sin that is unforgivable is rejecting the gospel, not receiving salvation as a free gift. The only sin that is unforgivable is, is basically calling the Holy Spirit a liar when he testifies to your heart that you need a Savior and that Jesus has come. And that's essentially what they were doing. Wake up. Quit rejecting the gospel. Quit rejecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead, make sure you all know the gospel and make sure you're telling others. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. They got this wrong gospel instead of the right one. He says, and I say this to your shame. He says, wake up. You guys should know better. Quit spreading this falseness. Instead, make sure other people know who God is and know about the real gospel. And I find that incredibly challenging. We just had Dr. Leon in on Friday night. And it was such an incredible message. And it was so simple. It was just about being the beautiful feet that carry the good news. It was a challenge. And he said, he, says, he told a story. He said, Dr. Leon, they said, Dr. Leon, what's the best meeting that you ever went to? He said, there was one time I went to a, a village. And I was able to, to convince them to let me in. And they took me to one hut. And I began to share the gospel with one man. And he said, and it was an incredible meeting. And 100% of the people that were there got saved. So the best meeting I ever had, 100% conversion. The one man got saved. 100% conversion. The most powerful meeting I ever had. And that was definitely a challenge to me to make sure that people 
have knowledge of God, have knowledge of the gospel so that I don't have to stand before Jesus and instead of him saying, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, him going, well, done? I want to stand before him knowing that I've done what I've called to do and sharing with everybody because it's such, the gospel is so simple and everybody needs it. And how easy is it to, to have that audience of one, to, to have relationships with people, to share that with them so that that way they can partake in the same treasure that we have in earthen vessels. So let's wake up, be wise about who we're spending our time with, and make sure that we're sharing the gospel at every opportunity. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to it.